This week, we continue our exploration of the law and its relationship to us as Christians. But before we go further, we should pause and define what we mean by the law. Are we referring to the law that's given to Moses in Exodus? Or do we mean the whole thing, the five books of Moses? Or perhaps something else? Once we've decided that, we can turn our attention to how the law was used by the early Christians in the Acts of the Apostles to see what light that might shed on the issue. The bottom line, understanding the law is an instructional process that strengthens our Christian walk on the way. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Father Dustin. As you know, we've spent the last two weeks exploring the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've explored how the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as how the early church fathers saw Christ embedded in the Old Testament. It was an engagement with the Old Testament in light of the cross and resurrection that these folks were able to see who Christ is. This is what we've come to call according to Scripture. We've also thought about how the New Testament authors used the Old Testament in their portrayal of Christ. Matthew, for example, tells the story of Christ in such a way that he sums up the entirety of the history of Israel. And John, in contrast, applies temple imagery to Christ to tell us that God is now present through his chosen and enfleshed Messiah. But what we haven't explored yet is the nature of the law and its application to us as Christians. That's what I hope to do in today's podcast. Perhaps the best way to think about this is through an engagement with Scripture. No surprise here. Particularly, an engagement with two stories found in the book of Acts. But before we do that, I want to remind you the reading that prompted these last few podcasts. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As Christians, we usually think that we are freed from the law. So verses like this one from Matthew, that was Matthew five seventeen through 20 by the way. So verses like this one always throw us for a loop. So because of this, I think it's good to start by defining what we mean by the word law, which is also known as the Torah in Hebrew, or the Pentateuch in Greek. And this could also be translated in English as instruction. So I'm going to steal a thought from Father Mark Bulos and the Literature as Bible podcast here. In an episode a few years ago, 
Father Mark said that there are essentially two laws. The first law is the entirety of the Torah. By this, Father Mark meant the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He meant all of these as a whole, sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch. All of it is the law that's been handed down to us. This means that every word, the stories included, are a part of the law, and it's all God's instruction to us. So, that's one way we can talk about law, or one meaning that we can attribute to the word law. The second law is a character within the Torah, or Pentateuch. By this, Father Mark meant the law, the stone tablets that were handed to Moses on Mount Sinai. This law, as you know, comes with a lot of prescriptions, details about how to build the tabernacle, how to sew the vestments for the priests, how to do the sacrifices, what needs to be sacrificed, and when, how to treat our neighbors, and it includes, of course, the Ten Commandments. Father Mark explained that when you're thinking of this law that's given to Moses, you have to think about it as a character within the larger story, something that's functioning within the text as a part of the larger story. So if we're thinking about these two definitions of the law, the law is the entirety of the five books of Moses, and the law that is a part of the story within the five books of Moses, we can say there's a law within the law. And this sort of distinction is helpful for us. When we start to hear about the law in the New Testament, we always have to back up and ask, which law are they talking about? Are they writing about the entirety of the five books of Moses, or do they mean the specific law handed down to Moses? Finally, there's also works of the law. I have an entire podcast with the scholar Matthew J. Thomas about this, but I'll sum it up here quickly. In the New Testament, and especially in the letters of Paul, there's this phrase, works of the law. By this, the New Testament authors mean specific rituals that mark someone out as being Jewish, such as circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and eating kosher. These things functioned as identity markers that set Jews apart from the Gentiles around them, especially the Romans who were occupying the Holy Land in the first century. These works of the law became important in the centuries before Jesus as Jewish leaders such as Judas Maccabees, attempted to form an independent and free nation of Israel. So, in this case, the phrase, works of the law, absolutely does not mean any sort of general or moral good work, which is how Luther understood this term. Rather than works of the law being a catch-all for good deeds, it's a very specific and technical term that implies a nationalistic identity. And since the gospel of Jesus Christ is being offered to everyone of all nations in order to allow everyone an opportunity to become a child of God, it obviously becomes a stumbling block and hindrance to the gospel. This is why Paul is able to oppose works of the law, but still advocate for the law in general. He's talking about two different things. The identity markers that set Jews apart on the one hand, and the instruction found within the entirety of the five books of Moses, on the other hand. Okay, now that we have definitions out of the way, we're still stuck with the question of 
do Christians have to follow the law? And which definition of the law are we even talking about when we ask the question? We'll see. Well, to begin to answer these questions, I want to look at two stories from the book of Acts, which will help us think through all of this. Acts of the Apostles, I believe, is a good starting point because it's the story of how the gospel starts to go out to the nations and the struggles that came with that. In other words, we see the disciples struggling with the same questions. The first story I want to discuss is of Peter's vision. Here it is. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the poor and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who is called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and, falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I am only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled, and he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you have sent me? That long reading was from Acts 10, 1 through 29. As you know, Peter ends up evangelizing them and telling them about the crucified and risen Christ. And as they listened, this is what happened. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. That's Acts 10, 44-48. I picked this particular passage because many Christians use it as an example to show that Christians are no longer required to keep kosher, a part of the law. In other words, they think we are able to eat what we want. However, is that the point of the story? Is that keeping the integrity of the story and what's really going on? I'm not so sure. So here's a situation where there's a Gentile centurion, Cornelius, who is a God-fearer, as they were called in those days. He was a non-Jew, but had an interest in worshiping the God of Israel. However, because he wasn't ethnically Jewish, he was kept on the outside. But what's interesting is the way Luke talks about him. He says Cornelius feared God, gave alms generously, and prayed constantly to God. For scripture lovers far and wide, this probably reminds you of the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus says our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. How? Well, Jesus goes on to talk about giving alms, praying, and fasting, in that order. Although Luke doesn't say anything about Cornelius or his family fasting, he is showing us that Cornelius is righteous. This is important, because immediately after the text tells us that Cornelius is as righteous as the Pharisees, the scene cuts to Peter's vision. Peter has this vision of unclean animals descending from heaven and a voice telling him to kill and eat. Of course, Peter is horrified. As a Jew, he wasn't allowed to eat unclean animals. This is one of the commandments as found in the law that's given to Moses. Note which law we're talking about. It's the character of the law in the text. After Peter protests eating these unclean animals, the voice chastises him and says that he shouldn't profane what God has made clean. As the story continues, we realize that the vision of the unclean animals is not really about eating kosher at all. Instead, it's about who is included in the people of God. It's a reference to the Gentile Cornelius. In other words, Peter's vision is telling him that Cornelius is righteous, is worthy of hearing the gospel, and is worthy of becoming a Christian. He shouldn't be kept away from God just because he's not Jewish. And in some ways, this story is also an insult to Peter and other Jews like him. They think they're righteous simply because they're Jewish. But this voice from heaven comes to say, guess what? Here's a Gentile that's also righteous, so keep your ego in check. So this passage, which some use to say we need to not follow the law, is actually using the law to make a bigger point. 
that the gospel is good news for everyone, no matter what your background is. So it's not really a comment on the law, it's using it. However, as we learned, the law can also be used for instruction. Now, stick with me for a minute. Remember that the law in Hebrew is Torah, and remember that I said it could also be translated as instruction. So in this case, the law that's given to Moses, that character within the larger story, functions to help the larger law, that is the entirety of the five books of Moses, instruct us about how we can be people of God. So the law hasn't passed away. It's still guiding us on the way, the path to life. It's showing us how to love our neighbor, how to evangelize, how to baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it does this by orienting our view of others to show us that God may be calling them and they may be more faithful than we think. So in this way, the law is still in full force guiding our actions, helping us walk the way. So next week, we look at another story from Luke's book of Acts. This time, it's a letter from Jewish Christians to Gentile Christians about what parts of the law the Gentile Christians are required to follow. We will see what that has to say and why they say it. Until then, God bless.